Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The Military Maxims of Napoleon. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today we're going to be continuing with our recent uh, readings into the military maxims of Napoleon. But before we get into that, I just, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes before I work, I like to listen to some pump-up music. You know, something that's kind of in the vein of what I'm doing to kind of get me in the mood to do it. You know, so before I go and uh, to go to like Belagarth practice, I will go and I'll, I'll listen to some good, like, Thin Troll or some other, like, really upbeat folk metal to just kind of get the the mood in me, right? Before I go in and work with my high schoolers, I'll listen to my chemical romance. Teenagers scare the living hell out of me. No, I'm only half joking. I'm only half joking. I've absolutely listened to that before I go in to work with the kids. And then before this show, you know, it's a wide uh, swath of things. But today, and the last several times, I thought I'd share with you at least one of the songs I listened to beforehand, and it is called I Will Rule the Universe by the band Civil War. Now, I, any of you who know me know how many of my, like, you know, million-dollar words are in that particular sentence, but uh, despite all of that, it's a very interesting song about Napoleon. Like, within the first, like, a couple of lines, it, it definitely frames it as in, like, this song is about Napoleon and about his kind of approach to warfare and the way he thought of himself and the way other people, you know, some other people thought of him. It's a very interesting song. So if you if you get a chance, it's on uh, Spotify, which is where I listen to all my stuff. Again, I, I, I wish I was getting paid for these plugs. I feel like when I bring this up, I'm if I was listening, I'd be like, oh, you know, that's shadow marketing or whatever. No, it's just a guy who keeps saying way more than he needs to without being paid to do it. But uh, so there you have it. I love Spotify. I mean, you're listening to me on it. Probably, statistically speaking, there's a good portion of you, at least, that, are, <laughs> that that applies to. Um, but, you know, uh, otherwise, it's, it's, yeah, it's just a good song. So, I Will Rule the Universe by Civil War. It's about Napoleon. Kind of gets me in the mood to talk about Napoleon in a very motivated sort of way. Talking about Napoleon, which I know is what we're going to be doing for the remainder of this episode, at least talking about his maxims, but speaking about him and his information specifically. I was musing about this the other day, and I thought that it might be something... I, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show before, the difference between inferred knowledge and explained knowledge. There are two different ways of getting information across, and these are two of the big ones that we're talking about. Or, you know, there's, there's many different ways, but these are two of the big ones. It's inferred knowledge and explained knowledge. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that one of these is way easier for a un- or inexperienced person 
to understand something. And even though it seems simple, stuff like Napoleon's maxims are actually high-level stuff. You know, same thing with Frederick, the same thing with Miyamoto Masashi. You know, there's, there's Sun Tzu, even. You've got these guys who speak in very broad terms, in very general terms, about very specific items, very specific ideas or concepts. And even, you know, Masashi is, he's, he wrote the book Five Rings, by the way, it's a swordsmanship manual. And even he's very honest as you're going through it. He'll go in and, and try to describe a particular mindset or a particular maneuver or technique. And in doing so, he'll, you'll, you know, he'll try to describe it the best he can. But usually at the end of the section, he'll say, and this is going to require a lot more thought and practice for you actually to understand what it means. And when I was in high school and I was reading through, you know, Miyamoto Musashi, I was like, yeah, absolutely. I understand everything he's saying for sure. I'm an amazing swordsman. And I come back now, you know, in my thirties and I read the same thing and I'm like, whoa, what did 20 years worth of difference do for me? Well, for one thing, a lot more of his words make sense to me. Same thing with Sun Tzu, same thing with Frederick. And it's because a lot of what they're doing, these guys, is dealing with inferred knowledge. Napoleon, for instance, he's not writing this, these maxims for you or me. I mean, when we were studying Frederick the Great's book, it even explicitly said in the book itself, this is not for anybody else other than Prussian high command. This is from my war council and my war council alone. And understanding this, we then can understand that they were all working with the same information. You know, everybody on Frederick's staff would have been a part of the same engagements, the same kind of struggles. And so when Frederick Holt handed down these rules, when he handed down these thoughts, these musings, these ways of going forward, everybody knew what he was talking about because they could infer the knowledge that he was drawing from. The same thing with Napoleon. He wasn't writing these maxims for, you know, random people to listen to on a podcast in, you know, the 2020s or whenever. You know, that's not what this was written for. It was written, written for like, probably his chiefs of staff. And going forward. And same thing with Musashi. He wrote his book for swordsmen. Sun Tzu would have written his for the generals of his time. And so all of these guys, all these guys with this very simple way of speaking, are doing it because there's a whole lot of knowledge that the people that they're intending this, these words for would have known as well. You and I are not that way. I have not served on Napoleon's chief of staff. I have not, you know, been aide-de-camp to Frederick the Great. Oh my God, would I have loved to though? Oh, talk to me, talk about a dream come true, right? But the, the fact of the matter is we have to rely on history. We have to rely on looking up and studying and trying to be a part of what the culture, what the, the zeitgeist of the time was to try to really understand who these books were being written for. That's, I'm going to go on a scholar tirade for a second. That's my big issue with old books and the world today. People who are reading these books and saying, well, I think this book means this to me. Okay, well, that's all fine and dandy. But that book was written for a specific audience by a specific person. There is a whole lot going on there that another person doesn't necessarily understand. Not to get religious or political, but for instance, the Bible. There is so much about the Old Testament that is, it makes a lot of sense culturally speaking. But when you're really trying to look at like the nitty gritty of it, it wasn't written specifically for a lot of the people who are reading it. Same thing with these, this book right here. It's not written specifically for a lot of the people who are now currently reading it. And so we have to try to read between the lines. 
and understand when we're dealing with this inferred knowledge. On the other side of the spectrum, however, we have our friend Clausewitz, who does the explained knowledge. And while I understand, especially for those of you who are reading along at home, Clausewitz is thick and it is tedious and it is drawn out and it is kind of redundant in some places, but, but if you are actually a neophyte to the subject of military science, if you are actually new to this particular study, Clausewitz is actually better in my opinion, because although the concepts may take longer to actually grasp because of the wordiness of them, the way that he explains things means that you need less inferred knowledge to understand what he's talking about. Because in a lot of the sections of he, his books, it's like he's talking to children. I mean, a lot of his stuff was being written for the school. He was, I mean, he was a professor for a long time. So, you know, he would have, he has a, a teacher's mind. The idea of, okay, how can I explain this to people who may not know what I'm talking about? And so that's the difference. Like if you've noticed the difference between Napoleon's maxims and Clausewitz, you know, that wordiness, it actually does make a difference, but not just the one way. It goes the other way too. And so while Napoleon may be quote unquote easier to understand, it's a deceptive understanding, right? Because when Napoleon says an army marches on its stomach, we all vaguely understand what he's talking about, right? I mean, it makes sense. You know, you eat better, you fight better. Boom. Makes sense. But what Napoleon isn't saying in all that is all of the knowledge that he has about logistics, all of the knowledge he has about feeding and clothing and moving and providing fire supply and everything to thousands of soldiers. Those, that's piece of information that he has, that he doesn't, ha that he doesn't have to explain necessarily because he has already inferred it. And so when he says something like an army marches on its stomach, he is saying it with that, with that idea that you understand exactly what he's talking about, like logistically speaking, which is part of the reason we go into the depth that we do in things of like camp life and logistics is so that we can really understand what these guys are talking about. And then we can actually look at what they're trying to tell us and, and take it and put it into our own context. Then not just take the words off the page, because we are not the people that that book was written for. We are not the people that these words were written for. They could not have anticipated us, trust me. But we can still draw wisdom from it. We just have to be mindful about how we go. And this, this idea of knowledge, and of course I, I always think of my students, especially since I, I only recently worked with them. And the piece of advice that I would have concerning knowledge, especially because the best transfer of knowledge, like books is, books are great. You know, I can sit here and, and study at the feet of Napoleon from a distance, say, hearing only what he had to say. I can't ask him questions. I can't ask for clarification. I just have to read what he put down, look at the way he lived his life and fought his battles and try to put two and two together. That's what I have. How much better is it when we have a master? And I don't mean master as in like somebody who controls us. I mean, master is in somebody who is there to teach us, somebody whose wisdom we respect. My master Vallis is a perfect example. I loved learning from that man. I loved the fact that I got to learn from him one-on-one, -on -one, got to ask him questions, got to be instructed in, in the various things that he knew. My favorite learning takes place as a student. So if we are students, if, if, if we approach a situation and we know that we're a student to it, we need to be eager eager to learn. 
from those who may know a little bit more than us or may have thought a little longer about something. As students, we must be eager to listen. And now that being said, as a student, eventually the goal, right, is to gain some sort of expertise in our knowledge, some sort of mastery, if you will. And once we gain this mastery, it is important for us to try to pass along some of that information, to try to pass along some of what we have come to learn, because humanity is a finite species. Our lives are not eternal. The things that I learn right now, I will take to my grave, unless I share them, you know, and I'm not the preeminent thinker on military science or military history by any stretch of the imagination, but I think, I say, I do, and I want to be able to share those things. But there's also responsibility that comes with being a quote-unquote master. You're taking other people's minds into your hands. If somebody is a master, you must be aware of the vulnerability that a student is, is facing with you because they're trusting. When a student comes and faces us, they are trusting us that we have their best interest at heart. The fact that we want to teach them and that we want to teach them well. That is what a student brings to us. And we have a responsibility not only to give them the right information and to make sure that it's the right information. It's not enough to sit there and be like, well, you know, I think it's this. No. If somebody is depending upon us for instruction, it is our duty and responsibility to provide them with the best information and the best instruction that we possibly can. And we have to be willing to put ourselves out there. We have to be willing to show up. If our student is going to show up to learn, then we need to show up to teach. We cannot teach if we're not there physically, mentally, emotionally. We have to show up for our students. So, for learning really to take place, for knowledge really to pass from one generation to the next, from one soldier to another, from one scholar to another, we both must be willing to learn and willing be willing to teach. All right. Now that you've let me wax philosophical for a few minutes, I think that we should jump right in where we were and talk about some of these maxims written down by Napoleon. All right, let us pick back up where we left off would be at 47. Now I promise that we are starting to move away from uh, artillery and from the nuances of it. I know I sometimes struggle in explaining artillery concepts because, like I said in the last episode, a whiteboard really is very necessary for explaining something as mathematically precise as siege engineering. So take that with a grain of salt. I might, again, I've made promises about videos before and, and I don't want to get your hopes up again, even though the ones that I have said that I'm going to make are on a list to be made. Just the where, when, when, hi, how, all that sort of thing is forthcoming. But <laughs> this is another video that I want to make, which is the idea of being able to draw out exactly what these concepts kind of look like. First, I have to get a whiteboard. I'll get right on that. But we're moving away from that now, and we're going to start moving into some stuff that might pertain a little bit more to what we do in our gaming. So 47. Infantry, cavalry, and artillery cannot dispense with each other. They ought to be quartered in such a manner as always to be able to support each other in case of a surprise. He's not necessarily saying that soldiers should lay down with horses. 
and, and, you know, sleep across cannons or something like that. Like you don't want everybody mushed up together because it becomes ineffective. However, we also don't want people to be too far away. We don't want the artillery placed in such an area that if they're attacked, our infantry can't support them and fend off that attack. We don't want our infantry put in such a place that if they're attacked, the artillery cannot support them. And so the idea with what he's saying here is make sure that even when we're encamped, even when we're doing our downtimes, we need to make sure that if a surprise happens, we're able to react to it. Because the whole point of a surprise is that you are not anticipating it. Hence, surprise. But what we can anticipate is what our needs might be in the event of a surprise. If somebody comes from a direction or at a time that we're not expecting, how can we try to mitigate our losses and have a plan B, as it were? But again, don't sleep on your cannon. It's weird. Number 48. Infantry formed in line should be in two ranks only, for the musket cannot otherwise be used with equal effect. It is admitted that the fire of the third rank is very imperfect, and even injurious to that of the first two. But though a great body of infantry should be drawn up, as it has just been said, in two ranks, the absence of a regular third rank should be supplied by a super by supernumeraries comprised of one soldier out of nine, or one in every two yards. The common fighting style at the time was something that you've probably seen in a, a movie that is depicting something like Revolutionary War era, or Napoleonic, obviously, War era, fighting tactics, which is where that front row kneels down, and the second row kind of stands over them and shoots. This kind of first-rank fire, second-rank fire sort of idea. Well, what he's saying here is that trying to throw a third rank in there doesn't really make much sense because with the first two, you've got a, a wall of fire that you can put out. You've got the bottom layer, the folks who are kneeling down, and you've got that top layer coming over. Well, a third, a third line is people who aren't shooting because they're not going to be able to get through although, unless you're trying to make things unsafe and trying to crowd together way too much, in which case, how are you going to aim? Or they're just standing back there, which means you've got an entire line of people, armed people, who are not bringing those weapons to bear. That is also ineffective. And so having a third line in this particular style of fighting was kind of wasteful and could be dangerous. Now, what's he saying in the second part of this, though, where he's talking about super numinaries? I've never said that word out loud before in my life. Super numinaries. Reserves. Small time reserves is what we're talking about here. And so what we're saying is, you know, one out of nine or one person every two yards. It means you've got somebody there to help plug a gap if you need. You've got somebody there who can maybe help with reloads or running ammo back and forth. But again, this is sort of a, just like a switch hitter. It's not somebody who's there on a particular detail. They're there for general detail. And if they need to step in, they can step in and keep a, a hole from opening up the line so you still have that, that weight of fire being put down, which is the whole point of, of firearms in this particular era of war. They were not overly accurate. And so to have that wall of bullets coming at you was important. Well, to be sending the wall of bullets out was important. If it's coming at you, then you're in a really bad spot. But yeah, so infantry, only the two ranks save. And, and for us, this is a matter of saying, don't render our own things ineffective. You know, if we're fighting, for instance, and we're, we're in the line, Having a line behind the second one, so let's say you've got your front line and that's your, that's your you know, swordsman, that's your 
shieldsmen, the ones who are in there just kind of getting into the scrum. Second line in back from that is going to be your spears and your glaives and whatnot. Well, for us, actually, a third line is kind of necessary because that's the archers. But, but, much like with this, they're not nearly as thick, numerically speaking, and they're not just right there. You know, our archers are more like artillery. So they're back and above. So if we're thinking about them like artillery, then we have this same idea. This first rank fire, second rank fire, working together, but also where a third rank, like we had another row of spears behind that, not as effective. Especially with this sort of dynamic, small group combat that we do. Because even as large as something like Belagarth can be, like I've seen hundreds of people on a field before, that still isn't large enough, typically, for a hoplite formation to work for like the, the really long spears, because we have so much room for maneuver and hoplites work if you've got like thousands of dudes marching forward and there is no way to get around the flank. For us, it's pretty easy. So that, so much like Napoleon, economy. We're trying to use economy of fire, economy of force, and that means using everything we can in the most effective means possible. 49, the practice of mingling companies of horse and foot together is bad. It produces nothing but trouble. The cavalry is deprived of its capacity for rapidity of motion. It is cramped by all the in all the movements, and it loses its impulse. The infantry, too, is exposed, for, at the first movement of the cavalry, it remains without support. The best mode of protecting cavalry is to support its flank. So while this sort of seems like it's contradicting number 47, where we're talking about how they cannot dispense with one another, there's a fine line between being too far apart and being too close together. And there's that, of course, that Goldilocks zone that we're looking for, but we're try if we're trying to mingle these two together, the infantry just gets in the way of the calf. The whole point of the calf is that they're able to maneuver the way that they want to maneuver. But the infantry, because the second that the cavalry leave, suddenly leave like holes, suddenly leave them unsupported because they were not planning to be in this situation without the calf. And so the idea is that they are supposed to work in tandem together, but not mixed together. I mean, think about this. Our flankers typically start on the outskirts. Like we're not sending flankers in from the center out to the outside, as a general rule. We can sometimes, but for the most part, that which we have as our, as our infantry is our infantry and that which is our cav is our cav. And we want to keep our cav in such a place that it is supported and protected by the infantry, but where it is in position to get up there and, and do its job without having to worry about the infantry being in its own way. So while we want them close together and closely interacting, not together, if you know what I mean, not, not like in the same unit as it were. I mean, I've, I've definitely gotten in my own way before in a game of 40 K where I've had my cav way too close to my infantry. And then when that, that golden opportunity arises, my cav can't get there because they have to get around my infantry first. So yeah, the, I mean, in particular, I don't know about the, the infantry losing out on the cav being around, but the cav definitely lose out the second that they try to sacrifice that mobility, which is their chief weapon. 50. Charges of cavalry are equally serviceable in the beginning, the middle, and the end of battle. They should be executed whenever they can be made on the flanks of the infantry, particularly when the latter is engaged in front. Pretty straightforward. 
He's saying there is no perfect mathematical timing for a charge. If you've got the opportunity at the beginning, great, go for it. Middle, superb, and swell. And the opportunity that the cavalry are ever looking for is to be able to turn that flank, to be able to hit it and roll down it and take people out when they're not paying attention. And of course, the pursuit, as we've talked about before. Now, as we've also talked about before, the timing here is necessary. Because, as they said, you know, it, it, may, it needs to be made on the flanks of the infantry, particularly when they are engaged in the front. We have talked about before how you, we must never charge unbroken infantry. I've done it before in Belagarth, in Warhammer 40k, in video games, and it has ended nine times out of ten the exact same way. Scattered, broken, defeat. Because the cavalry is the follow-up punch. You don't, you don't, you know, lead with your follow-up punch. That's the reason it's called a follow-up punch. And so the cav sits there. The cav is reactionary. The infantry goes. The infantry often classifies our action. What are we doing? What are we trying to achieve? Our cavalry help us with our reaction to what our opponent is doing, where our opponent is engaging, where they're falling back from. This is where we can use our cavalry to its maximum benefit. And so again, our charges are good any time of the battle, as long as they're made at the opportune time. See what I was saying though, <laughs> in the intro, when I was saying something about inferred knowledge versus explained knowledge. So this seems very simple where he's like, oh yeah, charges of cavalry are equally serviceable in all parts of a battle. Just wait until they're engaged. Again, easy, easy to talk about, but there's so much inferred knowledge there. There's so much practice that he has about when to charge and what to charge. So much that is not being explained in this simple little parable. Good thing you have me, right? Your, your neighborhood book nerd. <laughs> Sit down and work through this. Oh, Napoleon, you crack me up. Oh, 51. It is a function of the cavalry to follow up the victory and prevent the beaten enemy from rallying. Yeah. Pretty straightforward, like we had just said about the pursuit. That is the other job of the cav. The cav's job is to break the enemy. If we can manage to pull off that flanking technique or hit them in a vulnerable spot when they are otherwise occupied elsewhere. And the pursuit. Once our opponent is broken, once they are fleeing, once they are repositioning, this is the time to harry them. This is the time to be on them as much as we can to prevent them from unifying, prevent them from being able to have a, a, a front, a cohesive front against us again. And this is where the cavalry shines, these two things. And really, I mean, according to Clausewitz, this is the whole point of the cavalry, is the pursuit, is to make sure that our opponent isn't able to regain their footing. So that one's pretty straightforward. 52. Artillery is more necessary to cavalry than to infantry, because cavalry does not fire and can fight only in close conflict. It is to supply this deficiency that all horse artillery has been resorted to. Cavalry, therefore, should always be accompanied by cannon, whether attacking, resting in position, or rallying. As an aside, this text that I'm reading does not use the Oxford comma, and admittedly, it bothers me. So, for what we're doing, when we're dealing with something like medieval foam fighting, like Belagarth or Dagger here or Darkon on something like that, this isn't as, as true, obviously. Because like in both cases, our quote-unquote infantry and cavalry 
neither typically have long-range weapons. You know, we're, we're not dealing with, uh, everybody's fighting in close conflict, except for the archers, or whoever's leading up the back there. And so, th this particular one doesn't necessarily apply to the analogy that I have been using there, so kind of ignore it. But when it comes to something like 40k, where we get to have a bit more modern warfare, and where infantry, cavalry, and artillery do have much more defined roles, like they do in this book, well, it's absolutely true. I've absolutely done all infantry armies. Ones that are, are, you know, they're just there, they're there. I mean, think about, I don't know what the meta is going to be when you're listening to this, but Dark Angel's Deathwing. You can easily run an all-infantry company of Dark Angel's Deathwing and have it be just fine. Because the Terminators are very well armored, they can take a lot of different types of weapons, much like the infantry during these times might have, especially in, you know, more modern warfare time frame. And so infantry can support itself simply because of the plethora of weapons that it can bring to the field. Now, when you're looking at cavalry, as a general rule within something like 40k, at least the armies that I play, cavalry does tend to have fairly light guns. You know, fairly light on the firepower, if any firepower whatsoever. And so because of this, it does need to rely on something to open up. Because again, we don't want to be charging unbroken infantry. If I've got a cav-only army, and I'm trying to charge into unbroken infantry. Have I played a Ravenwing-only army? Yes, I have. Has it been really difficult to overcome some of the obstacles that your opponent can place in your way, particularly larger vehicles and whatnot? Yes, it can. So with that army, it would have really paid to have some, some artillery in there too, some big guns. And that's what it's kind of saying. It's saying that, because like we had talked about with Klauswitz, infantry is the jack of all trades. It does both things, the things, it has the destructive element of the firepower, and it has elements of mobility. Just not as good of mobility as the cav, and just not as, you know, a destructive potential as artillery. So, in the middle, it can perform both adequately. But if we're just dealing with the one side, then it needs to be balanced out with the other. If we just have mobility, then we also need it to have that, that punch to back it up. And vice versa, it doesn't, you know, having that punch doesn't matter if suddenly we can't move and our opponent is, is right there. I've got my line of basilisks and it works really good for a little bit. And then when my opponent gets in and, and closes with them, my basilisks are no longer any good to anyone. That's an artillery piece, by the way, for those of you who don't play 40k. So yeah, take this to heart and, and understand again what he's talking about. With something like what we're dealing with in Bell or, or Dagger something, maybe not. Um, so much this, but certainly when you're dealing with war games that are more, deal with a more modern setting, I would absolutely agree with what he's saying here. 53. The principal part of the artillery should be with the divisions of infantry and of cavalry, whether marching or in position, and the rest should be placed in reserve. Each piece should have with it 300 charges of powder and ball, besides the contents of the ammunition box. That is about the quanti quantity consumed in two battles. So we're not trying to disperse our things, right? We just talked about that a few maxims ago, where we want our stuff to be together. And the artillery is no different. We want it moving up, want it to be in position with our cavalry and with our infantry. Much like anything else, though, having a reserve matters. Just in case, you know, a, a system be, or a piece of our army gets fired upon or taken out and pieces have to be left behind, having... Something in reserve is always good. It doesn't just have to be cavalry or infantry. Artillery matter too. But that artillery needs to be well supplied. 
And I know we don't have to bring every single bullet to every single case of ammunition or, or you know, charge with us. Our arrows we can regain. But maybe that's, that's what we'll talk about in, in terms of the, the comparison here. As an archer, I want to make sure that I go onto the field with the right amount of arrows. Now, when we're dealing with the cannons, having too much isn't all that possible. Like, you can always return it to the store. And they're firing from, firing from fairly fortified and stationary positions. As a combat archer, you're all over the place. It's not like I just pick a place on the field and just fire from there. No, as my team moves, I need to be moving with them constantly. And so I can't just put my arrows on the ground and then lean down and pick them up at leisure. Like, they need to be ready to go. So for my own self, I don't use a quiver. I think a quiver gets in the way. Um, I hold them in my hand, in my fist, um, while I'm shooting. And it means that it's much quicker to get them on the bow, but it also means that I only have so many I can carry. I only like to really have five or six arrows on me at a time. Any more than that, and it gets hard to manage them. Can somebody with a quiver hold more? Yes. Are they going to have the same mobility as me? Maybe. But it's kind of the same idea, a little bit. <laughs> Come prepared. Make sure you have the ammunition you're going to need. We don't necessarily need enough for two battles, though, because we get to go around and pick ours up up at the end. Huzzah. Batteries should be placed in the most advantageous positions, and as far in advance of the lines of infantry and cavalry as is possible without endangering the guns. It is desirable that the batteries should have command over the field equal to the full height of the platform. They must not be masked on the right or left, but should be at liberty to, to fire directly at every single point. Archery is much the same. And artillery is much the same in the games. You know, when you're dealing with archery, I often do start in front of the rest of the team. It's, it's one of those, you feel naked as an archer. You're not out there heavily armored, typically. You're not out there with a big shield. And so the idea of standing in front of the lines of everybody else can be rather daunting as a prospect. But let me tell you this, or let me ask you this. Where are my soldiers going? My fellow warriors on the field, where, where are they going? Don't overthink it. Forward. Forward is where they're going. Now, if I'm already forward shooting, and my soldiers go forward past me, well, I haven't actually changed my position, but I have actually gotten closer to the enemy and gotten more protection from my team without having to step, without having to move, without having to shift, without having to break my concentration. And so while it may seem counterintuitive to start archers in front of the army, I typically do. And it's not just me. I learned this from reading history. It's very common back in the Middle Ages when archers were being used for them to be standing forward in volley. And then once the enemy began to close, the infantry and the, the cavalry would move either through and around them to get there. But yeah, the archers are standing there making sure that they have the range of fire and support uh, their, their you know, fellow troops. It's no different in, in this day and age with wargaming. If we're all the way in the back, that means that we have to make so much more effort to getting forward and finding a good place to be and good place to shoot. If we've already picked out our spot, well, it's just a matter for the other infantry and cavalry to come up and protect us, which it is in their best interest to do. And this is very similar with something like 40k as well. It is a trap to want to place our artillery really far back on the line. In some cases, 
is it a good idea? In some cases, is it precisely where you need them to be in terms of just like field control or trying to hold up a, something in the back? Sure. But not so far in the back that they're no longer useful to us. Not so far in the back that they can't actually provide the support. My artillery is constantly coming forward with me because I need to use it. It doesn't do me any good as a paperweight in the back of the board, much like when we're talking about, you know, using all three lines of infantry and that third line being ineffective in terms of it eliminating an entire line worth of soldiers from firing. It's the same idea with an artillery piece. If we keep it in the back line and it stays there the whole game and hardly touches anyone, what was the point? You know, that's, that's a good 10th of our army maybe that's, that's tied up in that piece that we never really used, that didn't really come to bear with our enemy. We got to use what we have. We got to use what we have to the best of our ability to get the greatest advantage that we can. Also, don't block yourself. I mean, that, that's fairly obvious from here, but that was another point that he made that I wanted to stress as well. Don't block. I mean, our whole point as artillery is to make sure that we have the full range of motion, that we can see everywhere, and just trust in our ability to dodge our opponent's artillery or to get out of the way of it in some other way. Find a good position, sure. Try to protect ourselves, absolutely. Limit our range of fire and our, and our vision, absolutely not. Number 55. A general should avoid putting his army into quarters of refreshment, so long as he has the opportunity of collecting magazines of provisions and forage, thus supplying the wants of his soldiers. Quarters of refreshment, in this particular case, means like basically billeting everybody. Like saying, okay, we're going to camp for a while while we, you know, get in contact with our, with our storage lines. It breaks momentum is the issue with what he's talking about here, because trying to get everybody down, trying to get everybody to a relaxed state, then trying to get everybody back up and going. It's hard. It's hard. We're dealing with, with some of the principles of physics here, in particular inertia at this point, which is that an army, an army at rest stays at rest and an army in motion stays in motion. We are no different than anything else existing in physics. So the same thing happens here. What we're looking for is to gather on the move. We're trying to find things on the move and maybe tap back at our magazines, but it's not a matter of going into quarters for refreshment to be able to bring up more supplies. If we want to keep going, I do this throughout the day of fighting in, in, a, in a more minor way because it's much the same at an event for me. You know, if I'm fighting and then I take a big old break, chances are I'm not necessarily going to be as motivated to get back on the field of battle. If I've just eaten a big meal or, you know, had a very good conversation with a friend that had nothing to do with fighting or did something else that, you know, relaxed me, mellowed me out. Well, I'm not going to want to fight as much. And if I'm at an event just to enjoy myself and, and that's okay, then that's okay. But if I'm trying to get as much field time as possible, you know, if my unit is out there and they need me on the field, then I need to avoid periods of refreshment myself. You know, go to the side of the field, grab a quick drink of water. Absolutely. Eat a small thing of crackers to make sure that I'm buoying my blood sugar. Absolutely. Sit down and eat a big old meal in the middle of the day. No, no. I, I, I mean, I didn't do that at Battle for the Ring. And I'm broken. <laughs> I was out there for six hours and I, there was a lunch in the middle of it and there was a whole thing prepared. I mean, you, you talked to Sarka or you listened to Sarka in the interview that I did post battle for the ring. 
Now, there was a lot that she was talking about that went into these meals, and many of them were ornate. Maybe ornate's not the right, the right, not right word, but they were, there was a lot to them. You could easily fill up on good food. And the one big day that I was fighting, I went over and I think I had half of a peanut butter, peanut butter sandwich. You know, just enough to get something on my stomach to give me a little bit more energy. And then I went back out when I was immediately fighting. And some of the other folks that I went over there with, well, they stayed. They sat. They drank some water. They had some good conversations. They didn't just have a PB&J, but they had some chips. Maybe a salad. Whatever else was there that I didn't look at because I was in transit back to the field. And they stayed there. I didn't see those folks back on the field for the rest of the day. Now, is that a problem? Did they still have the same uh, good event? Absolutely. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. This is just for your WAC players. You know, your WAAC win at all cost. We can't be bogging ourselves down with relaxation. We have to stay in the mood, stay in the moment, stay in motion. I find 40k to be much the same. You know, we want to remain engaged. We want to remain kind of looking at what's going on. I don't want to become complacent. I don't want to have to sit there and try to relax between things. You know, I want to keep my mind on the game and keep moving on the game so that I can stay in it. That object uh, in motion thing. I think it applies more to physical wargaming than intellectual, but it's still there. I mean, it's still there. You still want to keep your headspace, keep moving forward. Makes sense to me. Number 56. A good general, good officers, commissioned and non-commissioned, good organization, good instruction, and strict discipline make good troops independently of the cause for which they are fighting. But enthusiasm, love of country, and the desire of contributing to the national glory may also animate young troops with advantage. We can cultivate all these other things in us through simple practice. You know, a good general, good officers, we're talking about good head speak here. Are we thinking about this in the right way? Are we bringing a calm, even mind to our wargaming, right? And of course, that's commissioned and non-commissioned. You know, anybody who has been in NCO is like, oh, officers. But really, it's the, pe the people who are making the decisions, the people who are making the calls, right? And if that's us, that's the head. And we can train ourselves. We can read books. We can study uh, maps and military science and talk to our peers. You know, we can make ourselves into good generals and good officers. You know, good organization and good instruction and strict discipline, we can do all those things too. We can make sure that we are training ourselves. We can make sure that we are keeping our discipline up, keeping our forms together, instructing others <clears throat> for ourselves and for our units as well. We can make sure that we're doing this even for the people that we're fighting with. And same thing with something like 40K or other intellectual wargaming. We can make sure that we know our army to the T. We know how to use our army because we've practiced with our army. We, we have the discipline to use the army. That being said, enthusiasm, and what he doesn't say here, youthful vigor, matters for quite a lot. You know, I have 20 years of experience. My, my fighting career is older than the majority of my students at this point. And I still have to contend with the advantage that is, is given by youthful vigor. They just, they bend more than me, okay? They bounce more than me. Like if they hit the deck, they come right back up. And I'm jealous because if I hit the deck, I stay there for a second. Gravity becomes very seductive. <laughs> you know, the, the get up and go kind of got up and went in a lot of ways. And it's, and it's not even that much. I'm not even, 
I'm not even old yet, and I can already feel the difference between myself and these younger fighters. Now, a younger fighter who has embraced the way of discipline, who has embraced the way of instruction, unstoppable. Just unstoppable. If you combine discipline with enthusiasm, you have a well, well-oiled weapon at that point. And of course, love of country, love of the game, love of Stygia is something that I do. I go to an event and anytime I'm repping Stygia or repping my unit, it definitely fills me with a, with a desire to compete that I don't necessarily have when I'm on my own. You know, I like to fight on my own, don't get me wrong. But if I'm sitting there representing my realm, I'm gonna fight just a little bit harder. If I'm sitting there representing my unit, I'm gonna fight just a little bit harder or even a lot a bit harder. But in both these cases, I'm not fighting just for myself. And all of the knowledge in the world doesn't convey the same advantage as all of those things plus enthusiasm, plus the, the ura to really be there and to really participate. Now that's the good stuff. That's what we're aiming for. We've got one more, and then I think we're gonna stop for there and save some more for, I mean, we've still got a couple more episodes of this, thankfully. I'm really enjoying these, and I, I hope you are too. But our last one for today, 57. It is very difficult for a nation to create an army when it has not already have, when it does not already have a body of officers and non-commissioned officers to serve as a nucleus and a system of military organization. Starting from scratch is difficult. You know, I, I've, I've seen it done. I've seen people try to do it. And unfortunately there's just something conveyed through experience. Remember that difference between inferred and explained experience and knowledge? It's very important when we're trying to organize things too. The reason that I was able to start the Gladiator Club after only having fought for was it two or three years, it wasn't that long when I had started it, but I was able to because I was tapping those who knew more than me. You know, I was talking to Vallis, for instance, and he was a, a realm leader. Sumatai was also a realm leader. You know, Juniper, other folks who were you know, older than me, who were better at fighting, better at organizing, had a more realistic idea of how things were supposed to be run, supposed to be done. If I didn't have that information, I'm not sure how successful. And Thumbs, too. I mean, I don't mean to leave him out. He was there as well. We had, we had kind of waded into that together in a lot of ways. And he, his experience absolutely contributed it to as well. Now, if we had just come into it been like, okay, we fought for two practices. We're going to go try to start this up someplace. We're going to try to in instruct other people in this. Ugh. You know, we're still learning in a big way. But at least at this point, even though Thumbs and I were still very much greenhorns, we were greenhorns who had enough experience to be able to teach others and have that be meaningful. Rather than just coming in and being like, well, I know nothing, you know nothing, let's know nothing together. And so in this case, Thumbs and I both represented the well-trained you know, the nucleus by which the rest of it could gather. And that's the whole point of the gladiators now. My, my original desire was to have it be a completely a student-run organization. But fairly quickly after I graduated, I realized that it really did pay to have somebody there who was an advisor, who was a coach, who was there to try to impart the information to the people who were there in the program from a more experienced and, and ability to explain that experience standpoint. Does it mean that I'm in charge. I mean, ish. I mean, I'm in charge on the field. I'm the volunteer that calls the shots and everything, but it's their club. 
Like I'm not there telling them what to do. I'm not there telling them how to run it or, or what they may or may want, not want from it. I'm there to in, instruct in fighting, to make sure it's safe and fun and, and to, you know, facilitate the, the rest of it. Like I, I'm there, their behest, but the whole point of it is that I am the, the experience center by which the rest of it can kind of gather myself and turtle. I mean, he's there too. And he knows quite a bit at this point, very good fighter. And so he's able to instruct as well from his point of view, from his experience. And between the two of us, you know, our, the officers of the officers or of the, um, of the gladiator school, it's able to be far more effective than just a single student coming back with a small amount of knowledge, a whole lot of heart. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, in, that none of them lack heart. My students are all very bold, bold people, and I love them dearly for it. But knowledge is important too. And even though youthful vigor can make up for the lack of it, sometimes nothing beats experience and motivation coming at something together. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. <laughs>